Hey everyone, you're listening to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. I created this podcast as a way to talk about uh, the films that I watch, and I wanted to have a space to uh, talk about personal thoughts and feelings about cinema. I live in a rural area, uh, so I don't really have access to like art house cinema. I mainly watch it online, and um, I don't really have any kind of connection to a, a cinema community or cinephile community where I live. So that's the function of this podcast and why I created it. If you're wondering about the title, it comes from an email I sent a friend a few years ago. And at the time I was really obsessed with films, as I usually am. And I wrote that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so it just became this recurring phrase that I used to describe what I was feeling or just the mood I was in, you know, when I was obsessed with films. So, um, today I wanted to talk about a film that I'm sure most of you have maybe seen or that you have have at least heard of, and that film is Moonlight, um, directed by Barry Jenkins and released in 2016. Just a few days ago, um, amid controversy, uh, it did win the Oscar for Best Film of the Year. Unfortunately, I felt like its moment was a bit diminished because of the whole fiasco with La La Land. Uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway read that La La Land had won when they didn't. And so, instead of us talking about Moonlight winning, (laughs) everybody talked about uh, the fiasco with La La Land. And um, I just, I find it kind of annoying because I feel like this film, and I haven't seen La La Land, I want to, but I haven't yet. I feel like Moonlight is so important and so extraordinary and so moving that it deserves every accolade, every bit of attention that it receives, every award, and more, really, because it's such an accomplishment, I think. And um, I'm so glad that it won. I hate that it was kind of overshadowed by that controversy. it rightfully won, and I do think it's a movie that years from now we'll look back on and we'll say, wow, this was a great moment. And um, sometimes the best Oscar, the films that win for, you know, the film of the year at the Oscars, they're films that most people forget about within a few years that people don't continually go back to. And um, I think for once the Academy got it right in choosing a film that was timely, but a film that is also timeless and that will hold up as the years go by. I really do believe that. Um, If you haven't seen Moonlight, then I suggest that you do see it if you're able. And if you are worried about spoilers, um, I wouldn't listen to this podcast until you've seen it and then maybe come back and listen to it. But it's up to you. Some people don't mind if something's spoiled. But I really want to be able to talk about nuances of the film without worrying that I'm spoiling it for someone. So I do want to give you that warning, a heads up, that I just want to casually talk about the film and things may be spoiled if you haven't seen it yet. So for those of you who don't know, or maybe you do, Moonlight is about um, a young man named Chiron, and he grows up in Miami, Florida, and the film follows him through three phases of his life and uses three different actors to 
um, represent those parts of his life. And it's ultimately about, you know, a young black gay man and his experience. And I wouldn't say a lot happens. You know, it's... Some people have said the film is slow. I don't really understand that as a criticism. <laughs> I think it's a naturalistic, realistic film. And if it's slow to some people, then I guess it's slow. But I think it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And, um... In the first uh, phase, in the first part of the film, he's Chiron is a little boy, and his name, his nickname is Little. And um, we learn about a lot about Chiron. We learn that he's bullied, that he's often chased by boys who call him a faggot and um, attack him physically. His mother is addicted to drugs, and that affects Chiron in various ways. What's important about the first part of the film, the first um, era of Chiron's life, is his connection to a man named Juan. And Juan is a drug dealer. We learn that he actually sells drugs to Chiron's mother, which is so tragic and really a painful scene. Um, but Juan find Chiron hiding from these boys that had been attacking and bullying him. And Juan becomes sort of a surrogate father because Chiron is being raised by a single mother. Chiron's father is not involved in his life, obviously. And Juan sort of takes it upon himself to take, you know, Chiron under his wing. And he becomes a, sort of a father figure, a mentor to Chiron. And there's this really beautiful scene that brought me to tears. And it's it shows Juan and Chiron in the ocean. You know, when you think of Miami, you certainly think of the water. When you think of Florida in general, you think of beaches. And he takes, uh, Juan takes Chiron swimming in the water. And I, I got the sense that Chiron had never been in the water until that point. And, um, and he holds on. Yeah. What? What's your treat? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Thanks. You want some drink? No, I've got water. It might be high. That's why. Okay. Oh. Thanks. There's just some little salt on. Okay. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> okay. That was my mom's husband. He brought me. Um, he brought me some potatoes. <laughs> Um, so, sorry about that interruption. Um, so, Juan is showing Chiron how to swim and how to float in the ocean. And he says something, and you can tell that Chiron is sort of scared about it. And, and um, you know, when he says something like, don't worry, I've got you. <sighs> okay, tears. Um, and he's holding Chiron, and he's... He's letting Chiron know that he's safe and that he is protected and that he's not going to let Chiron drown or, or anything like that. Um, there was just something about that scene, I guess the way that it was shot and just, it was this moment of tenderness between Juan and Chiron. It was, um, it was a very powerful scene to show 
Um, oh God, I have trouble talking about this film because I lost my father when I was 16. And um, it was in 2006 that he died. And um, in a way, I know what it's like to live without a father. It's not the same as Chiron. I certainly, like when I'm talking about this film, I don't want anyone to think that I'm comparing my experiences with Chiron or that I'm speaking for Chiron or, or comparing it in any way. Because I certainly don't know what it's like to live from infancy without a father. But I do want to talk about the parts of the film that moved me and why they moved me. And they moved me because I felt a personal connection with certain aspects of Chiron's life. And I related to some of the things that were in the film, even though I'm a white woman. <laughs> I'm obviously, you know, don't have Chiron's experiences in life. But, um... I used to swim with my father and um, we sometimes on the summers my grandparents had this lake house uh, I lived in North Carolina and um, we would go there and my dad and I would you know swim together and um, he would do heads handstands in the water and and things like that and and um, I remember even like my mom sometimes would float and me and my dad would she was always scared about it and we would just tell her you know we're we're holding on to you you know you're not gonna drown we're not gonna let you sink and so when I saw that scene of Chiron and, and Juan I just thought it was very powerful and um, it was about Juan reaching out to Chiron reaching into Chiron and saying somebody's here that loves you somebody's here that cares about you and I'm gonna protect you and I'm gonna take care of you and I think that's a very powerful thing for a child to hear especially if that child maybe hasn't experienced that before or if it's lacking in their life you know I think Chiron's mom this film doesn't demonize her you know she is addicted to drugs and that's an unfortunate thing but she's still a person you know and she's still his mother you know she's still doing the best she can you know she's not this monster you know and um so that connection between Juan and Chiron is really beautiful and um at the SAGs I don't know if it was this year or last year but Mahershala Ali who plays Juan he won the SAG um, for his performance and he gave this really beautiful speech um, I just retweeted it on Twitter because I was thinking about it when I was thinking about doing this podcast and I went and I rewatched it and it just was so powerful he talks about being a Muslim and he was actually the first Muslim to win an Academy Award this year for his role in Moonlight which is just shocking that, that no other Muslim has ever won I mean my god you know although is it surprising because often Muslims are typecast in films are often typecast as as violent and you know as terrorists and things like that so actually it doesn't surprise me unfortunately um, and in his speech Mahershala said um, he said this he said we see what happens when you persecute people they fold into themselves he goes on to say that he was glad to play Juan because <coughs> because Juan was someone 
who really saw a young boy who was folding into himself because of persecution, because of racism and homophobia. And Juan raised him up. He raised Chiron up and let Chiron know that he was okay and that he mattered. And so what you see in the relationship between Juan and Chiron is something actually quite radical in this day and age. And that is a black father figure. Um, a positive portrayal of black fatherhood. Because often we do not see that. That's why this film is so radical and so important. In general. Oh God, I don't know if you hear that. It's my dog barking. But um, what's so radical is that we don't see that enough. Oh Lord. Sorry if you hear that. It's just my dog. Um, okay, I lost my train of thought. Um, in general, we don't see positive portrayals of black men. We see black criminality, and you should watch Ava DuVernay's film, um, 13th, which is on Netflix. It's a great documentary, and it's really about mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, and the criminalization of black people, and black men in particular. But that's what we see. We see a lot of portraits of black men as criminals, as, um, as deviant as violent um, and Chiron does come from uh, you know an impoverished place he does come from a place where there is I suppose you know drugs and gang violence and things like that but he but there's more to his story than that you know there's more to his life than that this film just gives such a rounded whole portrait of a person and in particular a black man I mean in this day and age when we hear repeatedly about black men being gunned down by police, when we hear about Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, and not only are they murdered, which is bad enough, they are they are murdered a second time through the media. They are attacked a second time through the media that stereotypes them. Think about the way Trayvon Martin was portrayed, the way Michael Brown was portrayed. They weren't portrayed as children. They weren't portrayed as young, you know, teenage boys. They were portrayed as thugs, as thing, as people who were dangerous. Um, we don't give them subjectivity. We don't empathize with them. We're not asked to consider them as fully human. And so that's what Moonlight does, is that it asks us to look at a black man from a child to an adult and to look at him and see him as human, to see him as tender, to see him as sensitive, to see him as lost, to see him in pain. And I think that's really powerful, you know. Chiron is someone who is folding into himself. And personally, that's something I can relate to. I wasn't bullied to the extent that Chiron was, and I haven't had the same experiences through race or sexuality that he has, but I have really struggled in my life to connect with people, and I was very ostracized and marginalized as a child, and even today, you know, I'm very marginalized, and um, I grew up with a very low sense of myself and I felt very worthless as a person. I still do. In particular, right now I'm having a tough time and I just feel like a failure and I feel really low and really small. And um, 
I do fold into myself. I don't trust people. I don't. I don't have a lot of friends. Yeah, I'm very alone, and I'm very lonely and isolated, and and um, I haven't been treated well by people either. So I know what it's like to fold into yourself. I know what it's like to feel small, to feel little. That's his nickname. That's Chiron's nickname. But Chiron has these moments, I think, when he tries to make a connection, when he tries to reach out, when he tries to come out of himself a little bit and come out of that pain. There's this wonderful scene in the first half of the film when he fills his tub up with um, with water and with suds. And it seemed to me, I don't know those of you who have seen it, that he was trying to recreate the ocean in his bathtub. And it just seemed like he was trying to recapture that moment with Juan. It felt to me like that moment with Juan was very um, formative for him and very haunting. That it was something that perhaps he thought about a lot. That moment of a man holding him, a man touch, you know, a man protecting him, a man loving him and making him feel safe and protected. Um, the second phase of the film is about Chiron as a teenager. It charts his first homosexual encounter with a young boy named Kevin. And this is a really pivotal point in the film. It is, in a way, a sexual awakening, I guess you could say, um, where Chiron maybe awakens to his homosexuality. And... Um, they're on the beach and they kiss and there is a sexual encounter and what struck me and I loved that it was on the beach by the water it kind of reminded me of like when he was with Juan because Juan is that scene with Juan in the ocean is a, like I said a very pivotal scene a connection with another man and then you see with Kevin how that is a second connection with a man and that it's like the moment with Juan, it's very tender, it's very, I don't know if it's loving. I mean, I don't know if him and Kevin are in love. I mean, I guess you could say they are. I mean, they give each other these looks that kind of say, like, there's desire there. There's certainly desire. And it's just this very tender scene between two young men, you know, and I, I really... I liked that scene and there was a sense of connection I think the power of touch in your life it's like for me I haven't been touched a lot by people like people have rejected me you know I'm not pretty I'm not attractive I'm not desirable and so my life has been very defined by not being touched not being wanted or desired and so, I think with that scene with Chiron, you know, and it's hard for me to say that. You know, I'm 27 years old, and it's hard for me to say, you know, I'm not desired, and I'm not wanted. It's a hard thing to admit, but it's the truth of my life, and it's part of my life, and, um, and it's hard when you go through life, and people don't want you, and they don't want to know you and they don't want to have a relationship with you you know you do feel worthless and you do feel less than and you like Mahershala said you know you fold into yourself and that's certainly what I've done 
Um, and I think that's what Chiron did for a long time. But then he has this encounter with Kevin, and it really shows this power of touch and of connection and um, a physical connection, you know, not just emotional, but the power of touching someone, of being touched by someone, the power of desire, of being desired, of having your desires um, met, you know. It's a very, it's a very powerful thing, and I think it was very powerful for Chiron. But unfortunately, the teenage Chiron doesn't have Juan anymore. It appears that Juan has died for some reason. I didn't think it was clear. I mean, maybe I missed something. Um, so Juan is no longer in Chiron's life. So you see Chiron just sort of, he seems lost. And he seems a bit sad, I think, because of that loss. I, I would imagine that's a very devastating loss for Chiron. But he has this connection with Kevin, but of course that connection is endangered because there's this guy at school, I guess you could call him a bully or something, and he is very cruel towards Chiron, and he eggs on Kevin one day and makes Kevin hit Chiron. And so um, Chiron attacks that bully guy, and, he, and Chiron gets sent away. He gets sent to like Atlanta. I think, like, charges are pressed and stuff. So he leaves Miami for a long time. And so that segues into the third part of the film where Chiron has grown up and he's an adult. And he's very, unlike, unlike teenage Chiron and little kid Chiron, adult Chiron is very muscly and he's very powerful and he's very strong. And he actually sells drugs in Atlanta. That's how I interpreted that. And, um... It seemed to me like Chiron, because of his persecution, as 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 someone who people thought were thought was gay, that he went in the other direction and started to perform his masculinity in a very extreme and hyper masculine way, of you know the big muscles and he's lifting weights and he sells drugs and he becomes this very you know, hyper-masculine person to maybe sort of mask the homosexuality or to, or maybe just to feel powerful and to feel strong when for much of his life he felt so small and so um, persecuted and so uh, indefensible. You know, he, he couldn't defend himself. And so, um, and then one day Kevin calls him and so Chiron returns to Miami he visits his mom and they reconcile, which I really liked. I liked that he sort of had this reconciliation with his mother. Because at this point, his mother's not on drugs anymore. And she still loves him. I mean, I think she says something like, you know, I'll always love you. You don't have to love me, but I love you. And I was glad to see that reconciliation because she is, you know, she's a complicated person like all of us are. And she knows that she made a lot of mistakes with Chiron. And um, I was I was glad to see that reconciliation happen between the two of them. And then he goes and visits Kevin, and I just this was like the <laughs> this was such a great portion of the film. 
And there's almost like this seduction that happens between the two of them because Kevin's working at a cook at a restaurant and he cooks food for Chiron and he puts on a song for Chiron. And it's like, oh my God, like, have we seen this on film before? You know, of these two black men sort of seducing each other and giving each other these looks and, and this very latent, subtle sexual tension and sexual desire. And it was like, like I said, this, this seduction that was happening and, and it was erotic in a way. You know, there was an erotic component to it. You can tell that both of them remember that night on the beach together. That both of them were maybe sort of electrified and awakened by their connection that, that evening when they were teenage boys. And how, like, none of that has left. You know what I mean? Like, they're still charged. There's still this charge between the two of them, you know. And Kevin's very shocked at what Chiron has become. You know, the selling drugs. The He wears grills on his teeth. He, he seems like he's performing his masculinity to a very extreme degree. And I don't think Kevin expected that at all. And it's just, you can tell there's this fire between the two of them. And then they go back to Kevin's place. And and I was expecting sex. I'm just going to be honest here, okay? I was like, oh God, I hope they kiss. You know, because I was so involved in that connection between the two of them. And how beautiful it was. I was like, oh, I want them to kiss. It's like I was watching a romantic comedy or something. Like, please kiss. But that's not what happens. It's... It's much deeper than that. It goes so much deeper, that scene between Chiron and Kevin when they're together. It's... Chiron says that, you know, Kevin is the only man who's ever touched him. And, um... And then they just kind of hold each other. I just... It was so tender. Once again, I know I keep saying that word, but I think that's really important. In, because the depictions of black men in our society are not tender. They're violent. They're racist. They're, you know, they're one-dimensional and stereotypical, but they're not tender. And this film, it shows so many things. It shows love. It shows family. It shows, you know, connection and, and black fatherhood. And, and um... It shows just some really beautiful things. And that ending with Kevin and Chiron just... They just put their heads together. And Kevin has his arm around Chiron. And I just thought that's what so many people want. We talk about sex way too much. Way too much in our culture. We put so much importance on sex. And I'm not saying it's not important. It's, you know, sexuality is an important part of our lives. You know and of our beings. There's nothing wrong with being sexual. There's nothing wrong with wanting sexual pleasure. But I think at the end of the day, what a lot of us want is to be touched, is to be held, is to be loved tenderly and unconditionally. And uh, I felt like that's what Chiron and Kevin had. Is like There's just this tenderness between the two of them. And there's the power of touch and of just putting their heads together against each other and just, you know, Kevin's arm around Chiron's. And it's like, I just thought that was so beautiful. You know, that depiction of love and intimacy 
there's intimacy. I think that's what a lot of people want too. They don't want to just have sex. They want intimacy. They want to feel known. It reminded me of this scene in Carol um, where Kate Blanchett is on the phone with Therese, who's played by Rooney Mara, and Kate Blanchett plays Carol. And they're on the phone together, and and Carol says something like, she says, ask me things. She's like demanding, she wants Therese to ask her things. She says, ask me things, because she wants to be known, because she wants intimacy with someone, and she wants connection with someone. She doesn't just want the sexual component of it. That's there, and that desire is there. But more than anything, she wants to be known. And she wants someone to want to know her. And that's very powerful. And when you live much of your life without it, the way I have, and you're just starved for it, and you crave it, you desperately crave that somebody just wants to know you, just wants to put their arm around you, just wants to, you know, stroke your hair, or you know, just wants to have tender moments with you and wants to be part of your life and wants you part of their life and wants to love you in a full and meaningful and robust way. And it's like, what is that like? Because I don't know. <laughs> and, And I think Chiron probably always craved that as well. And don't I think a lot of us do. We crave that kind of love. That's total. And that's tender. And that's what we want, you know. And so I thought Moonlight, it's a love story. It's. It is about a young man who does fold into himself because of the racism and the homophobia and living in a society that will not allow him to fully be who he is because he is black and because he is gay. It reminded me of this it reminds me of this moment in the Nina Simone documentary, Whatever Happened to Nina Simone. And I don't know the exact quote, but it's like some of the people that knew Nina Simone were I don't know how to say it right, but it's like she could not be the person she wanted to be because of racism, because she wanted to be a certain woman. She wanted to be a certain way. She wanted to live free, and she could not. You know, she lived, in, and that is what racism is. It's it's systemic, you know, and it's, it's part of our society and our systems of power. But on a personal level, I would think, and I, I know I'm a white person, I'm speaking from that perspective, but when racism is so vile and it's so disgusting because that, because, because you cannot be who you are, you cannot be free, you know what I mean? It's a lack of freedom, it's a loss of freedom, it's, I don't, I'm not saying it right, but it's Nina Simone just didn't feel free, you know, in our society. And she didn't feel like she could be fully the woman and the person that she wanted to be. Because of racism. Because her hair. Because her skin. Because of her facial features. You know, that people would 
would not let her have that, you know. And would not let her be who she wanted to be fully, you know. And I felt that with Chiron too, that and all and all of us, you know, those of us who are marginalized in various ways, we feel that and you resist it as best you can, but you're always living within that system and you're always living with that feeling fundamentally that I cannot be who I want to be. I'm not allowed. And so I think Chiron struggled with that a lot. But with Kevin, you know, I love that it ended with him being with Kevin because in private, the two of them together, they can be who they are and they can be who they want to be with each other. And, um, and I think that's important. I think it's important to carve out spaces if we can to be exactly who we are. And I think that's why I write. And I imagine that's why Nina Simone sang. And I imagine that that's why various minorities do certain kinds of art or, or certain things, you know. Is that you have to carve a space where you can be yourself. Like when I was growing up, and I wrote about this in a review that I did of a Clarice Lyspector book called The Hour of the Star. I wrote about being invisible and um, the pain of invisibility. It's something I write about often actually because it's so much a part of my experience. And I wrote about how, um, you know, how I turned to writing. You know, I was shy. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't, or I'm still not, you know, I'm still shy. I'm still not pretty. I'm not seen. I'm not seen. No one wants to know me and no one sees me. And I live a very invisible, marginalized life in that way. And I always have from a very young age. I'm 27 now and I would say I started writing probably around 12, 13, 14 when I was in high school and um, I just felt this profound sense of invisibility and like I just didn't matter and so I wrote. I would take like a little notebook to school and, and when I had time and when I was by myself and I was alone and I would write in it and I would just write down my thoughts and sometimes I'd write poems. I'm a terrible poet. Um, I would write poems, you know, really bad poems. Um, I would just write down my thoughts and I would write down how I felt and I would write about books and art and and movies and history and things I was learning and I would just write down my thoughts and feelings and that's what I've done ever since. I still keep a journal. I still keep a diary. I still, I write because I feel like that's the only time that I'm really myself and that I can be who I am. You know, it's when I write down my thoughts and they're often very fragmented and that's sort of what I write now is like fragments. I'm very interested in the fragment as a form of literature and what can be done with it. Because I think the time we live in, the modern time, is very fragmented. And I think we're in fragments, really. And um, So I just continue to write. And that is the space that I have carved out where I can be myself, you know. And I wonder maybe if Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, if this film or, or his filmmaking 
could be connected to that as well as he wanted to tell this story he wanted to talk about this and um maybe through film is a way that he becomes himself and that he can express himself and express the things that he thinks and feels and sees and and that he wants to express to the world i wish he had won the oscar for best director but he didn't but i think this film is a true achievement and um I think that you should definitely watch it if you get a chance and if you're able to. Lastly, I've talked about the film, but I also want to talk about a connection that I saw with a second film. I On my Twitter, I do this thing called Double Features, Recommended Double Features, because I like this idea of seeing connections between films. And sometimes I'll watch a film and it'll remind me of another film and so I wanted to uh, talk about this other film and it's a Dutch film it's called It's Also Quiet and it, it's very different than Moonlight it's it's set in the Netherlands it's and it's about white people but there is there are similarities between the two it's about a man played by the late Jaron Willems um, he actually died shortly after the film was made, unfortunately. And his name, he plays a character named Helmer. And Helmer is a farmer. He lives on a farm with his father. He's actually taking care of his dying father. And at the same time, Helmer's coming to terms or dealing or struggling with his own sexuality. Um, that he, it seems like he's probably hidden it most of his life. Uh, the film was made in 2013. It was directed by a woman. Her name's Nanook Leopold. I'd actually like to see more of her films because I was really impressed with It's All So Quiet. Like Moonlight, the film is about the attraction between men um, and how that attraction is secret. It's often very secret, very subtle. Um... As a farmer, Helmer sort of interacts with this particular man who delivers something to the farm. And they have these interactions that are very, very subtle, they're very coded. But there seems to be sort of this sexual attraction between the two of them. But nothing, uh, nothing comes of it. Helmer doesn't act on it. Um, but there is a young man that comes to work on Helmer's farm. And one evening, he gets into bed with Helmer, and I think that I think Helmer sort of holds him or something, but it doesn't doesn't progress into anything. But there's certainly within Helmer there is this sort of unstated, unspoken, unexpressed homosexuality that it's it's subtly sort of implied that maybe his father has something to do with it that. Perhaps he didn't feel like he could be open about his sexuality because of his father. And, um, so it's this quiet film. It's, I guess like Moonlight, you could call it slow. Um, I, you know, I don't say that word in a pejorative way. Um, <laughs> a lot of films, I guess, are slow, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth watching or that they're not, you know, full of humanity and beauty. And, um... But it's a quiet film, as the title suggests. It's also quiet. But it's a film about uh, desire, yearning, loneliness. I mean, like Chiron, Helmer is very lonely. He, he's very lonely within 
within his life, you know, and um, he doesn't have a lot of moments of connection or of or of, of love, you know. And of course, Chiron's able to have certain some moments of connection and love, thankfully, you know. And um, so it just I sort of saw a connection between these two films that I thought was sort of interesting because they are about desire, they are about yearning, they are about loneliness, and they're about two men um, struggling with their sexuality, you know, dealing with living in societies that are maybe not as accepting of homosexuality. I'm not sure about the Netherlands. I'm not sure what their view is on gay people. But certainly with Chiron, you know, living in the South, living in Florida, living in America, you know, it's there it's still it's still very hard, you know, to be gay and to be homosexual. So so that's just a film to keep in mind, you know, if you ever get a chance to see it's also quiet. It may be something that would interest you if you like Moonlight because the characters to me were very similar and I saw some connections there between those two films. Even though they're in different geographies and, you know, different languages and <laughs> different environments. That's sort of a great thing about film is that people from different parts of the world can find connections and you can see uh, you can see the experience of someone who's very different from you and I always try to do that with film. I do seek out films that are about people who are very different from me um, because I think that's really important and and can help expand one's empathy and understanding of other people. So that is my podcast about Moonlight. Um, I hope it gave you some insight or helped in some way. Oh, I also wanted to say I love the um, the soundtrack for Moonlight by Nicholas Bertel. Uh, it's on Spotify in, in the U.S. I listen to it often. And um, it's probably my favorite soundtrack or film score from last year. It's, it's stunning. It's full of cellos and violins and this haunting piano. Uh, theme for Chiron and um, if you look on YouTube and um, Barry Jenkins talks a little bit about the music in Moonlight and um, what he was trying to do with with the music and the orchestra stuff and it's just a gorgeous gorgeous soundtrack and I, I listen to it a lot especially after I actually listened to the soundtrack before I saw the film but now that I've seen the film I listen to the soundtrack all the time. I love soundtrack music. I love film scores, especially if it's a movie that you really love. You know, the soundtrack and the score can be a way to return to that movie and a way that you can return to the film continually throughout your life. And you can keep up this connection and you can remember certain scenes when certain bits of music were playing. And it can just, you it's in a, it's a way to recreate the film in your mind really so I love film scores and film soundtracks I listen to them often so anyways that's what I have to say <laughs> thank you for listening and um, have a great day bye